Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina, underwritten by Anchor, where everyone can make a podcast for free. Seeing none, we'll jump in, but if you do have comments or questions, please, by all means. So we're already on chapter six, which is... uh, talking about entrepreneurship and starting a small business. And so this class, once again, this is Business 110. This is meant to be just a survey of a lot of different business topics. We just kind of skim over these things in a broad uh, sense. And as you go through a business education, you'll dive deeper into certain topics. Like there could be a whole class on human resources, a whole class on marketing, you know, that type of thing. So the learning outcomes or objectives for this, this chapter are Explain why people take the risk of entrepreneurship. List the attributes of success, uh, successful entrepreneurs. And describe entrepreneurial teams, entrepreneurs, and home and web-based businesses. Discuss the importance of small business to the American economy and summarize the major causes of small business failure. It does have a high failure rate. And depending on the stats, it, ra- it ranges, but we'll get to that in a moment. Summarize ways to learn about how small businesses operate. Analyze what it takes to start and run a small business and outline the advantages and disadvantages small businesses have in entering global markets. I will take a quick moment to plug our small business center. Did you guys know we had one on campus? Okay, we have what's called a small business center, the SBC, and it's a government-funded operation, and its objective is to be a consultant to either existing entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs. And so tons of training. They offer a standardized course uh, throughout the year, meaning that you can go in and they're going to offer the same 10 or 12 classes every year on taxes, on marketing your business, on writing a business plan, on uh, getting funding. And this is supposed to help you learn uh, above and beyond what you might learn in in a college education about the nuts and bolts that go into running a small business. I'll say that it's very involved, but can be very rewarding. Um, you should go into a small business with the same level of commitment that you would have to a relationship, because that's what it is. I mean, something that's going to require large chunks of your time and uh, a lot of energy that you have to invest into it. So let's dive a little bit deeper into this chapter. So an entrepreneur accepting the risk of starting and running a business. So some notable entrepreneurs are the French immigrants. Oh, of course, I can't pronounce it. Um, El Ruthere, Irene, does that look, oh yeah, Irene de Dupont de Nemores started Dupont. Okay, why can't I just say Dupont? In 1802, David McConnell, much better, borrowed $500 from a friend to start Avon. George Eastman started Kodak with a $3,000 investment in 1880. And then Jeff Bezos started Amazon with investments from his family and friends. You know, I'm, I like to hack on Jeff Bezos a little bit, but... He, his office, when he first got started, was literally that table right there. He had a very cramped little tiny office. I mean, he started with nothing and built it to what it is now. So you got to give him props uh, for what he's done. So you're never too young to be an entrepreneur. Five reasons to start your business right away. You have potential for long-term returns. The longer you're in it, the more development that you can give to your business. You don't have to be, uh, You don't have a mortgage or kids to take care of. So if you're young, you have less obligations uh, that give you more opportunities to focus on your business. 
You can survive on little funds and work long hours. Uh, no disruption to your career path that hasn't started yet. And you're more adaptable and have higher risk tolerance than at a younger age. Yeah, if, you, if you're a 40-year-old that has a mortgage uh, and a spouse and children, that's more risky than a 22-year-old that has none of those things. And if you try something and it doesn't work out, you could just start over, you know. But if you've got other people dependent on you, that increases the risk, you know, and you feel you feel that pain, that that uh, that that second guessing that I I don't want to put myself into risk because my there might be consequences for my spouse and children. So uh, more Americans are working over the age of sixty five since nineteen ninety six. Older Americans have opened businesses at a higher rate than those twenty to thirty four. Old entrepreneurs have greater experience and more financial resources. A lot of times, older folks will get involved in a business as a hobby. They may have wanted to do a business for a long term, but they've been devoted to a career where they couldn't get involved in a business. And so they say, you know, my retirement plan is to open up a, a coffee shop or a soup and sandwich shop or whatever. I'd love to open up a small cafe uh, as a retirement plan. Uh, may or may not ever do that, but I think it'd be fun. Um, only be open for like breakfast and lunch. I think that'd be a cool concept. So. So why people take the entrepreneur challenge? So there's four major reasons. The opportunity, the profit, I like to call that the profit motive, independence, and the challenge. And so the profit motive is a very strong motivator. If people say that I can take a dollar and turn it into two or three dollars, yeah, that's a big profit motivator because people realize that with a little bit of effort, I can start to make substantial money, you know, so... um, and opportunity is, a, is, a, is another thing that gets people motivated. Independence, not having to be tied to a workplace or uh, have a boss that's kind of hanging over your head. And the challenge, they like to see if they can do it. You know, there's this human intuition to see if we can cha- take on this challenge and rise above it. So what does it take to be an entrepreneur? You've got to be self-directed. You've got to be self-nurturing, meaning um, take care of yourself. You've got to be action-oriented. That's a big one. You got to be highly energetic and then tolerant of uncertainty, meaning that you're okay not knowing what the outcome could be. You're, you're fine. You're, you just say, look, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I feel like something good's going to happen, so I'm going to keep moving forward. So, self directed, what does that mean? Tell yourself where to go. What's that? Tell yourself where to go. Tell yourself where to go. You're instructing yourself on what I need to do today. Um, I used to do this more, but I've kind of changed my pattern. Uh, At my old job, I used to write down a bulleted list of everything I need to do tomorrow before I left for the day. And I had kind of a list of things I wanted to tackle. And I found the most productive time of my day was the first two hours on the job. Like when I get there, if I jump in and hit that hard, I can get a lot done in those first two hours. That's just for me. Not everybody's the same. But the longer you wait to tackle that list, the less likely it's going to get done. And anything that didn't get done, I always moved it to the top of the list for the next day. So you've got to be self-directed. And, and, and even on the jo- even if you don't or not an entrepreneur and you've got a job, a lot of employers expect you to be self-directed. Like my boss doesn't tell me what to do all day long. He expects that I'm going to know what needs to be done and go ahead and take care of things that, that need to be addressed and move on. If, if my boss had to tell me what to do all day long, that would not be very good. You know, you don't want somebody that you have to – direct all day long self-nurturing why do you think that's up there 
Because like we had this conversation before class about you guys staying up to four or five o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it's it's fun when you're young, but I, it's being real. You gotta have sleep. You gotta have a certain amount of sleep, because like as I I'm not old, but I'm I'll be forty four this year, and not sleeping it messes with your heart, it messes with your mind, it messes with all of your your entire body is is dependent upon quality sleep to recover, and so you got to take care of yourself. And so, like, nowadays, I try to be in bed around 9, 9, nine to 10, depending on a school night. And even on the weekends, I stay up later, but I realize there's a cutoff where I'm like, look, I don't need to be up late because I'm going to be wrecked. You know, I need to make sure I'm, I'm getting the rest I need. And you find that when people are getting older, I mean, I'm sure some of you have parents and grandparents that go to sleep in the afternoon. My parents do. I go to my parents' house in the middle of the afternoon, I'm like, knocking on the door, what's up? They're asleep, you know. Because they're, they're self-nurturing. They, their body's calling for them to do that. What about action-oriented? What does that mean? you got to get up and get moving. you got to do something. Like, you want to accomplish something to move the ball forward, so to speak. And you've got to ha- have that attitude every day. got to do something to make a substantive change. Highly energetic is self-explanatory. But, yeah, that's something that I find in common with very successful people. They're high energy. They're always ready to go. Here we go. Let's go. That's a, that's a common uh, personality trait you see with uh, entrepreneurs and self-starters. And then that tolerant of uncertainty. Yeah, life is full of uncertainty. Some people won't take a risk because they scare, they're scared or they fear the outcome might be negative. But an entrepreneur will take a risk and is okay with not doing the outcome. I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to bet on myself and hope for a good outcome. And if it doesn't work out, they learn something and adjust and move, move on. Most entrepreneurs I've talked to have had stacks of failure in the past, and they just realize that I'm going to fail until I get it right. And there's tons of examples throughout history like that. So tips for starting your own business in school, find a problem or need, find a mentor, somebody that you could talk to about it that has some experience, zero in on specifics, do research on campus, test products with students, Move forward with your ideas. Don't wait. Sacrifice, um, sacrifice and embrace failure. So if something doesn't work, does that mean it's the end of the world? No. Does that mean that you're never going to be an entrepreneur? No. It just means that you realize some, a way that, you know, to do it better in the future. So what's something that you think is an unmet need? A problem that you think exists in the world that you wish somebody would fix? <clears throat> I'm thinking myself, what's a, what's a product or service that people need, but we just don't have it yet? What is that? I have one. And so I'll give you one of mine. <clears throat> you know those little label makers? You can like, you can put, you, there's some that come on the keyboard that you can type in something and they print and it'll print out a label. Are you familiar with that? I always thought it'd be cool to have a label maker that's about this size, about the size of maybe a doorknob, maybe a little bit bigger, that has a magnet on the back that you stick on the refrigerator. And then all you do is set the time and the date, and all you do is push a button, and it'll print out the date and the time on the label. And then you take that and stick it on a food item. And then it comes with a guide to let you know how long that food will be safe in the fridge. So, like, 
I know all of us in here probably have food in the refrigerator. Some of us might have been there a little bit longer than it needs to be. But if you have a label maker that'll print the date and the time and you stick it on that food item, you'll know like, hey, this is when I opened this or this is when that pizza went in this fridge. So I know it's only good for... And really, I, I couldn't quote you much, but like takeout is only good for like two or three days once you put it in the fridge, something like that. John's thinking, Are you, do you mean two or three weeks? No, two or three days. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, when you open sliced meat like deli meats, there's a shelf life on that once it's open in the fridge. And so that's my unmet need. Is there anything you guys think that we need in society or the world that hasn't been made yet? Somebody on Shark Tank came up with this idea for, you know, extension cords that are usually coming white or black, and they're kind of unsightly. Somebody made an extension cord that was wood grain. And so if you have wooden floors, it kind of blends in. I don't know if the world needed that or not, but they made it. So, Okay, how about this? I'll make it an easier question. Have you seen an invention in the past year that you thought was really neat? And it was like, man, I can't believe I didn't think of that. You're thinking about all the as seen on TV stuff. I appreciate all the conversation, guys. It's... You know, the, uh, uh, my dad has one battery daddy. What is that? Um, it's like a little like, box thing that okay. you all your batteries in, so you don't have to use a big Sure. I've got something similar, but that's available. Yeah, the world needs that. Anything else? No? What about Yeti coolers? We'll go back to that. That's the easy one from last week. Does the world need Yeti coolers? I'm not, not need. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, they're hugely popular. I mean, a lot of people buy them. Well, see, like, every there's different mentalities for things. Like, when I... And the, the crazy thing is, you don't always have to be the cheapest. Because there is a consumer that's going to pay three or four hundred dollars for a cooler. There, there is that consumer out there that does it because they're doing it. I mean, they've got uh, right down the street here at Dwayne's. They've got a whole section committed to uh, the Yeti coolers. And so, for me, I don't know. Like, I want one just because it's cool, you know. Like, but uh, I don't know. Like, I don't absolutely have to have one. But there is something about the quality of it. You can tell it's a nice quality device. And so it's kind of like got me kind of wanting one, but I know that I'd feel kind of sick spending $400 on a cooler at the same time, you know, so, yeah. But I don't know, somebody along the way said, the world needs this, and I'm going to make it and put it out there. So let's talk about Seth Godin for a minute. I'm going to digress just a little bit. Seth Godin is a business writer. I love Seth. I've, re I've, I've read several of his books. I've probably told you about some of his books, but his whole philosophy, this guy's a multimillionaire, he, he does speaking gigs and tours. But his whole philosophy is you need to put stuff out into the world and it's okay if it doesn't work, but you just need to keep creating stuff and putting it out there, whether it be products or services, and eventually you're going to strike lightning. You know, that's going to that's gonna hit and you're, you're going to find an audience that wants what you're selling. And it's, it's just going to be, it could be a magical thing. 
And but you also need to be okay if it doesn't ever hit, you know, just to make it for the fact that you're intrinsically creating something that you want to make. And that's the best kind of businesses, you know. I told you the story about one of our uh, staff members left to go be an artist. And I said, you know, you'll probably do okay selling paintings, but you'll probably make two or three times more money uh, just doing the TikToks of you painting and people watching that. So there is a demand for everybody's art, everybody's creations out there. Um, when I say art, I, I mean that very loosely. It's, just, it's not, not necessarily drawing or painting or music. Art is anything we create and we're willing to share. And so um, you've got the, the biggest challenge that you all have is getting over yourself and, not, and talking yourself out of stepping out there. Because once you do it and you're successful, you get more confidence. And you find entrepreneurs that own 10 businesses and they'll say, yeah, when I was first getting started, I was nervous. I didn't think I was going to make it. I didn't have a lot of money. But I just got out there and worked hard and kept hustling, and now I've got 10 businesses, and I'm, I'm a multimillionaire. And it all started with this desire to get out there and make a difference and do something, you know. So you embracing failure. If it didn't work, keep going. All right. Other questions or comments? So why people take the entrepreneurial challenge? Turning your passions and problems into opportunities. Most sources of innovation are like a flashlight. Any idea is a good opportunity if it fills customers' needs. You have the skills and resources to start a business. You can sell the product or service at a reasonable price and profit. You can get your product or service to customers before the window of opportunity closes, and you can keep the business going. Um, I went to school with a guy named Art Miller, and I didn't know Art was gonna be an entrepreneur, but when he got out of school, he started a lawn care business and he specifically targeted com beach communities, close, close, close to the beach, not necessarily on the beach or in sandy areas, but he got into landscape and lawn care in these like country clubs down at the coast. And before you know it, this guy has dozens of trucks and crews, and it's a big, big operation up and down the East Coast um, doing lawn care and, and maintenance. And, but that's, when you say like, if you reduce it down to they're just cutting grass and, you know, weed eating, uh, it's more than that. You know, he, he is, he's got it into a system where he's serving that clientele. He's, he's made it approachable for that specific, like, hiring clientele, and he's, he's done a good job with it. My dad has some land that he needed help with, and these two guys came up and were willing to help him, and they do a tremendous job. And it's just two guys that are sole proprietors doing their thing, and I think he pays them something like $30 an hour. I mean, they're, but they're highly efficient at what they do. So, um, but like I said, you got to find that gap. And so many things, like the cooler has been out forever, you know, going back to the Yeti thing. But somebody said, we're gonna reinvent or repackage it or make it, we're gonna make it 10 times more expensive than it was. You know, instead of a $40 cooler, we're gonna do a $400 cooler. And but we're gonna make it really good quality and we're gonna build a brand around it. And people are gonna love it and eat it up, you know. And it's become like kind of a status symbol. You got Yeti, Yeti coolers off the back of the truck. Um, you're a part of the, the Cool Kids Club, you know, so. Um, but anything, I mean, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm kind of against open up a hamburger joint, but people do it every day in America. You know, people open a grill selling hamburgers and hot dogs, 
and are crazy successful. In fact, in my hometown um, was a shop called TA's. When TA sold out, he sold to his daughter, Jennifer. They called it Jennifer's Grill for a long time. Jennifer worked that grill for like 20 years herself. She ran it. And she had a staff with her, but she was flipping burgers. She sold her business to somebody else. She went, and they own a beach house. And she's retired at the beach. She's probably in her mid-50s now. But they were making a killing, doing selling hamburgers and hot dogs. And they were just open for breakfast and lunch. That's it. And she comes, she, when, she, when she got to the beach, they bought a food truck. So they have Jennifer's Grill at the beach now. They do that a couple days a week just for fun, to make some extra money. So... Don't think that you have to have a brand new, unique, original idea. Don't think that you have to have a brand new, unique product or service. You can reinvent the wheel and just serve a different group, a different demographic, um, a different niche, and and keep on going and and make a very lucrative career out of that. So um, entrepreneur teams are a group of experienced people from different areas of business who join to form a managerial team with the skills to develop, make, and market new, a new product. Teams can combine their creative skills with production and marketing skills from the start, ensure more cooperation and coordination among functions. Did we establish most of you guys are Apple product users? Is anybody an Android person? No? Okay. So do you remember a couple years ago, Apple came out with these little air tags? You've seen those? Usually little like, tracking things, so if you lose your keys, you can find them. Well, somebody saw that, and they said, well, people love Apple products, and they're about to put out these little $30 tags. I'm going to make a holder so somebody can put that tag into it, and you can attach it to the keychain because it doesn't attach by itself, you know. And I can't tell you, there's just endless companies that do that, but they make a kill in doing it. You know, you're paying 5 to $10 and on up for these little holders to hold the little thing. And think about phone cases. How many hundreds of millions of phone cases have been made? That, and that's not Apple making these. This is a third party saying, I see an unmet need. And there's all different kinds of styles and types of phone cases, you know. So you don't have to, like I said, I mean, create that original product. But you have to be able to see an opportunity where... There is, a, there is a large group of people that might need that product or service. And so it's all around us. You just have to be willing to say, man, um, I, this is something I saw on the news. I don't know if there's a product or service available here, but I watched on the news recently this week that there's a lady who goes around filming people driving Teslas, and she has observed Tesla drivers sleeping in their cars while they're going down the road on auto drive, she has observed Tesla drivers playing on their phone and no hands on the wheel. And this is not a 100% safe scenario. You know what I mean? Like there's still risk involved with these automated driving situations. And you're still supposed to, even though you're, if you're on a auto drive mode, you're still supposed to have a, at least one hand on the wheel and to maintain alertness. You're not supposed to go to sleep. Well, this one lady was asleep in the car. And so like, I don't know. I mean, if, if there's going to be a trend towards self-driving cars, what type of safety thing could we come up with or something that would cater to that? I don't know. I mean, what, what, what do you think we could create that could be a add-on accessory to that industry? I don't know. What could, what could, what could that be? 
Tesla has them in uh, the car detects it. One hand's on the wheel and it's supposed to. It's supposed to, yeah. Do something shut down. Yeah. I'll see if we can find that here in a minute, like to see if we can uh, actually watch that video of that lady sleeping in the car. But yeah, she, I don't know if she's got her hand on the wheel or not, but she's, she's obviously passed out, you know. So, hey David. So yeah, I mean, but that's the, that's the kind of things you need to look at is like, where's the, just like when you're playing baseball, you, it's not where the ball is, it's where it's gonna be. You have to plan for that. And so like, you know, you, and when you're, when you're hunting, you have to aim where the animal's gonna be, not where it is now. Same thing with marketing and same thing with uh, <clears throat> meeting needs and, and wants and needs of the consumer. You have to try to project where that need is going to be because if you aim at where they're at right now, it's gonna, they're going to keep moving and you're going to be off course. You know, <clears throat> So you have to anticipate where that consumer is going to move to and kind of do what's called sociological imagination. You have to kind of think, okay, this is why I still like the food industry so much, even though food costs have gone up. Because I know tomorrow people are going to wake up and want to eat something. You know, I mean, that's, that's a given. But I don't know if this particular thing is going to be a fat item or not, or people are going to be over it or not. <clears throat> Does anybody remember this company called LuLaRoe? Anybody remember this? It's amazing how quickly something can come into the culture and leave. So probably five years ago or so, maybe a little bit before that, <clears throat> this company called LuLaRoe came on the scene. And... It was a home-based business, but guess how much it cost to get involved? Between five and $10,000. And so if you were an entrepreneur, you say, okay, instead of going out and getting a physical retail space, I can just operate out of my house, save that overhead, and I'm going to buy five to $10,000 worth of inventory, clothing. And what you would do is open up a boutique in your house, have people come in and see clothes and buy clothes out of the house. The challenge was is that I've worked in retail and I've worked in soft lines with clothing. Um, clothing is very faddish. I mean, what looks what's what's popular today is not going to be popular tomorrow. And on top of that, um, sell through on clothes is very tough. Meaning that if you've got a hundred items, you might sell through fifty of them. What are you going to do with the next fifty? You know, so you got to mark them down to try to get them out. And what they found was these these women that were buying into this business, largely women buying into this business. They just had clothes that would stack on top of each other. They might have, you know, 20 pairs of clothes left over from this month. Then a new order comes in. They sell through as much as they can. Now they got 50. And the next order comes in. They sell through down to, they got 30 left. Now they got 80 left over. And it just kept getting more and more inventory just hanging around. And then they started having some quality issues. It just was a mess. And so um, I guess the moral of that story is, like they they got people got involved with it because it was hot and interesting and fresh, but I kind of saw the writing on the wall. My wife said, "I might want to get involved in this," <clears throat> and I'm looking. At, I'm being real. I said, "You know, I don't see this being sustainable." I just told her straight up. I said, "For five or ten grand, and guess what? Everybody she bought clothes from went out of business. All of them. They end up selling their inventory for pennies on the dollar just to get out." And there's a great documentary on uh, Amazon Prime about. It's called Lula Rich. And the owners claimed that what happened was this thing called catastrophic success, where they were so successful that it just got to the point where they couldn't manage it. It grew too fast. I kind of buy part of that, but uh, there was a lot of um, negligence and things they did that was just not, not taking care of the business properly. 
And so there's a couple other things besides entrepreneurs. There's this term called entrepreneurs. These are creative people who work as entrepreneurs within a corporation. So they have the, the privilege of doing entrepreneurial work but being on a payroll. And they don't have to take the risk. The corporation is taking the risk. Entrepreneurs use a company's existing resources to launch new products for the company. Some of these examples include um, 3M's Post-it Notes, Apple's Mac Computer, and Sony's PlayStation. So you think about it, Sony was a company prior to PlayStation, and then they had a group of teams that said, we want to get into gaming, go. And that team got together and said, okay, if we were going to create a gaming console, what would it look like? And somebody said, oh, it should be disc-based. You know, we're going to make a disc-based gaming system that's going to have great graphics, that's going to be superior to Nintendo. They're the... They're the home console winner so far. And so they did that. They created a PlayStation. And what do you think is the dominant gaming system now? Is it Sony, Microsoft, or Nintendo? This is purely opinion. I don't think Xbox, but I'm pretty sure it's Sony's You're pretty sure it's what? PlayStation. PlayStation. What do you think, John? Um, well, I, honestly, I think <coughs> the play are, uh, Oh, okay, your console guy? Yeah. Yeah. I think they're coming in just because more people, it's, well, there for a while it was cheaper, and you get so much more. Better uh, graphics and stuff on a, yeah, on a console you, or a PC? Such a more, like you have Steam, <coughs> Steam does their sale, and you can buy a brand new game that may be like a couple months old, but right. for $5 instead right. of $75. Do you have a Steam Deck? No, I don't have a Steam Deck. Yeah. I've got, I bought um, two laptops last year for really cheap, like 125 a piece, Dell Latitudes, and I bought them just to put Linux on them. So I'm running Linux Ubuntu on one, and, and I'm running Mint on the other one, just to experiment with it. And uh, I downloaded Steam on one of them, and I downloaded one game. I hadn't, I hadn't dove into it, but it is cheap, you know, very, very good stuff. Yeah. What do you think, bud? What do you think is the dominant I like console? <clears throat> Some people will play Xbox for like a certain game, like Halo, for example. Sure. You can only play it on Xbox, so. And then PlayStation has their exclusives, so obviously some people may buy a PlayStation for that. Right. Um, I have both Xbox and PlayStation, so sure. it doesn't really matter to me. Um, Nintendo, it's Nintendo. Yeah. Um, so I feel like, I feel like it's <coughs> somewhat balanced. I don't think people have. It's a subjective, but I mean, PlayStation probably is the dominant species, but I'm a Nintendo fanboy because I grew up with Nintendo, so that is my preferred system, but I recognize the limitations of Nintendo when you get into big games, you know, like, I don't know, God of War, stuff like that, or Halo, so. I know recently they've, like, been getting into bigger games like Skyrim. Skyrim is incredible, yeah, really good. I found that pretty interesting because I always saw them as, like, it is, yeah. There's there's a lot of things about Switch that works. There's some things I don't like the the Switch store is just okay. There's a lot of garbage up there, so yeah. But do you think okay? Next evolution of this question: Do you think a fourth game console maker could come onto the market and challenge all three of these systems? It would definitely be <clears throat> really difficult. It would be difficult because when Sony entered, it was just you know, Nintendo, there's there a few other small systems, but Nintendo was the dominant force. So Sony took on Nintendo, and then Microsoft got involved, you know, and 
Microsoft just kept pouring money on it until it works. You know, they, it helped that hello. Yeah. Bought up studios to get more. So you don't think Jeff Bezos could say, "We're going to make the Prime Machine"? Dude, I know. <laughs> he tried. Didn't he try with Stadium? Or it was, it was Stadium. Stadia. Yeah, I remember Stadia came out. Stadia Cast is that? I think I think that's what it was called. Um, I thought that was Google's. Oh, was it? It was Google. Yeah, yeah, yeah Google Stadia. Yeah. But that thing flopped hard. Yeah. It did. Yeah. And that's what. And I feel like gaming is so. Which is valid. Like, if you're going to pay $75 for, $75 for a game, like, it better be good. It should be good. Um, I don't know. It's, just, it's a hard market to get into. I think, I don't know, this is this sounds terrible what I'm about to say about gaming, but I think they make too many games in the gaming industry because people gravitate to the top ten, you know. Like, like give people what they want. Like, for me, I've been a gamer for, like, almost 40 years, dude, for real. And I only play the same five games over and over again. Like right now, I play Skyrim, Zelda. Um, I play uh, Fallout Four occasionally, but outside of that, just a handful of games, you know. So I mean, yeah, I mean, so like I think it would be very difficult for another person to enter. But if you're a game maker, you need. To, but you don't. I mean, you want to encourage that competition of somebody coming along and doing something new and, and creative and different. So. Like, this chat GPT AI stuff. I mean, like, what does that look like? How about the idea of a game that would, uh, is adaptive, truly adaptive gameplay where it creates as it goes? Like, there is no linear thing that we go through. There is no hard final program file. There is an adaptive gameplay experience that this machine is constantly changing, and no two gameplay sessions are ever alike. So... That's what... Like, I wish there's not really any new type of game that has come out that has been, like, different from everyone else. Like, I wish there was more of. Right. But now it's just, like, you know, like, a shooter or, like, a RPG. Fantasy RPG, yeah. There's definitely genres, yeah. But there's never any that are vastly different. Yeah. Um, I was just, I guess the reason I'm talking about this is just we were just talking about like who? What company would somebody work at? You know that would say, "We want to spend X amount of dollars to see if we can get into the gaming console." I mean, it would be a very heavy lift, no doubt about it. I mean, uh, Oculus, Oculus, yeah, VR, yeah. I, I mean, I have no idea, but how much would you guess that Facebook owns Oculus, right? I think I think Meta Meta owns it. Yeah, so I have no idea, but I would guess just off the top of my head at least tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars they've poured into developing that. And if they were doing it thinking that it was going to be a mass adoption, what, on that topic real quick, what do you guys think about that? Do you, or do you think you would be comfortable wearing a VR like headset and spending hours inside that thing? What do you think? It's pretty cool, dude. Yeah? Is it comfortable? Huh? Is it comfortable? It's pretty would you th- would you think we c- people would dig the idea of putting one of those on and working eight hours a day with a VR mask on and that was that was how you interacted with the world? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little different, you know. I mean, what's that? Ready Player One. Yeah, 
I mean, I think Zuckerberg was betting that the metaverse was going to be the next thing, and the market is telling us that's not it. You know, the consumers are not there yet. Maybe they will be, but right now there has not been this mass migration toward the metaverse. People think it's cheesy, you know, and they just have not really responded to that. So, so basically you would have a like a Ready Player One setup where you have a separate life inside a virtual system and you can buy merchandise in there that would be like digital sneakers. Like Nike could say, we're putting out 3,000 gold edition Jordans. There's only 3,000, they're NFTs. And you can you can buy a pair, cost you ten grand, but you would own that that shoe until you either sold it to somebody else and transferred it to them, and then your digital representation of yourself could wear those, and you could wear them around a virtual sim, you know, where you're walking inside a virtual environment and rocking that that clothing, and just same thing as like status symbols in the real world, you would have different status symbols. And like if you were a like all star gamer gamer, you might have medals or some type of badges that signify how awesome you are. You know, like I used to be on a forum and it counted post counts, and so if you had over ten thousand posts, yeah, you were a player. You know, and so it was like a status symbol to get to ten thousand. So, so really nothing. It's really yeah. It's it's okay. virtual currency. So you know, but people put a lot of value in that stuff. You know, what I mean, so I don't know, but that's what the metaverse is. Is a uh, but you could, here's, here's another thing though, you could go in the metaverse, warp to a mall, walk around a virtual mall and go look at actual products and purchase actual products in that mall that would be shipped to your house or delivered same day depending on the service, you know. So you're having that virtual, real kind of crossover, you know. That, I see that Yeah, so and if I want to go to the mall, instead of me getting up and walking around, I can just go, or I can, I can go do a virtual Walmart experience where I walk around and pick out the products I want, and then my friend will fill that order, and I, either I go or, or or somebody brings them to me. You know that that's kind of where the metaverse crosses over to reality, and that's that's what they're saying might be the future. I don't know. I think there's going to be something like that. I don't know what it looks like. So, so when you come up, this is talking about entrepreneurs. Uh, when you come up with a winning idea, stick with it. Certainly has been the motto of 3M, the maker of Post-it Notes. The company encourages entrepreneurs among its employees by requiring them to devote at least 15% of their time to think about new products. How has this time, this commitment to innovation paid off for 3M and its employees? Google does something similar where they say, we want you to commit, I think, 20% of your week to new product concepts. And because of that, they came up with a bunch of different stuff. Um, I think Gmail was a invention uh, from one of that, and what else was another big one? Um, I think Google Maps or, or Google Ways or something like that was another invention from that. And so, yeah, these the incredible thing about technological innovation like that is that it's extremely deflationary. Like when when I was a kid, I have to I used to, have to go buy a calculator, and I have a calculator and I take to school and I, and how much do you think a basic calculator costs? Just a cheap calculator. How much? Ten bucks. Okay, I was gonna say three to five. We'll, we'll say five. So five bucks. Cal- cheap calculator. How much is the calculator on your smartphone? It's free. It is free because it's infinitely duplicatable. Like once somebody put the energy into creating that program, 
it's just there, man. You know, and so now I have a calculator on my phone, and there's hundreds of thousands of apps just like that now. Where, I mean, I've I know all of you have been in a scenario where you needed something, and then you pop up an app, and there it is, and it's free because it's just it's endlessly duplicatable, and so that's extremely powerful when you think I was paying ten dollars or five dollars for a calculator, and now I have all that same power but for free. So, really powerful stuff. So micropreneurs and home-based businesses, a micropreneur is an entrepreneur willing to accept the risk of starting and managing a business that remains small, lets them do the work they want to do, and offer them a balanced lifestyle. So I guess you could say my business was like that. Um, I don't consider it micro because I actually was doing a lot of volume, I thought. But, um, yeah, you don't have to open up a big business to have a small business that, that's doing some numbers. I mean... I think if you're doing anything that makes you somewhere between one and five hundred dollars a month, that's a win. You know, that's I mean, yeah, I mean five hundred dollars a month is a very nice side gig. You know, for somebody, especially if you don't have a lot of time commitment. Um, yeah, one of my buddies, he and his wife have been doing this for like twenty years. They have like a mail tracking service that they're hooked up with with a company. He doesn't tell me anything about it. Like he just says. And they, he said, I've been doing it for like two decades. And basically they get mail from different people and they track, like they have to enter information on the internet about how long it took to get there. It's like a metering service or something. But they make like two or $300 a month doing it. I was like, really? That's interesting. So just one of those little gigs they got hooked up with and they've been doing it forever. So more than half of the U.S. micropreneurs are home-based. Many are owned by people combining career and family. So... You see this a lot, like where somebody will have a traditional job, they got a family, but they'll also have a little small business on the side. Many, many people do stuff like this. Uh, what's an example of a home-based business that you've seen? Any ideas? People are selling a product or service. There was one, paparazzi jewelry. Did you, have you ever seen that? It's like really affordable jewelry that people would get and it's like one to five dollars um tupperware was a home-based business avon was is a, was a home-based business i've known several people that were very successful at avon i know two people that got the cadillac working with the company so um yeah but there's just endless examples of companies that are home-based that people can make a, a little bit extra money that doesn't mean they're all quality some of them are not so reasons for growth of home-based businesses Computer technology has leveled the playing field, meaning that we're competing against everybody else on earth that has an internet connection. Corporate downsizing has led many to venture out on their own. Social attitudes have changed, and new tax laws have loosened restrictions on deductions, deducting expenses for home office. I will say this. I'm not a tax expert. don't claim to be. But my understanding is if you're a married couple, there's a standard deduction of 24000 And what that means is... If you can't itemize deductions for over 24000 then any business write-offs that you have, if you're a sole proprietor, can't be used uh, unless you have itemizations higher than that because the, sole, the standard deduction is higher, and that's the automatic thing that you would go with. Once again, not a tax expert, just throwing that out there. And the reason I know that is because when I was a, had a small business, I was itemizing something like, Somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen to twenty thousand a year in itemizations, and 
when they changed the law, somewhere in the neighborhood of the past five years, um, they did away with that and said it has to be at least 24000 So, all right. <clears throat> um, challenges of home-based businesses, yeah. Getting new customers is difficult. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's difficult getting new customers? Hard to find. And getting a, getting a customer is partially about trust. People don't like to trust businesses that are running out of households. That's just a sad reality, you know. Uh, what else? And this is one that I think is crucial is if you're running a business out of your house, a lot of entrepreneurs like to try to be selling their business all the time, and customers don't like to be sold. It's just like if they – like for me, when I make a buying decision – I go ahead and make that buying decision and I go to buy it. I don't want you to sell it to me. I've made a buying decision. I've looked done the research. I'm here to buy it. Like, but if you've got a, let's say that you're a home-based business, you've got a circle of friends of 50 people and you go around and talk to each 50 of them about buying your product and service, the next time you go around the circle, they're not excited to talk to you. Why? Because you're trying to sell them something, you know, and they, they're going to have to uncomfortably tell you no again. So... Managing your time requires self-discipline. Work and family tasks are sometimes not separated. Government or uh, ordinances may restrict your business, and homeowners insurance may not cover your business-related claims. I'm not going to read all this, <laughs> but this this talks about different potential home-based businesses, and I'm going to um, talk about some of this. But personal creations like artwork and handmade items, in-home services such as tutoring, landscaping, snow shoveling, house cleaning, pet sitting babysitting, web design, personal training, uh, home organizing. Going back to tutoring real quick, I cannot remember the name of the, the organization, but it was a Chinese-based company where Americans were tutoring wealthy Chinese children to speak English. Have you heard of this? Um, it paid like $25 an hour, but it was kind of a rigorous interview, and you had to get up and tutor kids at like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning because in China, it was like the afternoon there. It was like 4 or 5, five o'clock in the afternoon there. And so you had to be available early. And one of my big challenges or barriers was I didn't have a rock-solid internet connection. And so, and there was some really cheesy stuff involved with it too. Like uh, if you're teaching really young kids, you almost had to have it set up kind of like Sesame Street. You had to have like a backdrop prop and doing all these goofy like okay, you know, like, and some people use puppets and stuff. I was like, I don't know if I want to do this for $25 an hour. So I was just like, it sounded, it sounds good, you know, but I just didn't feel like, you know, I felt, I knew somebody that did that. So repairs or skill-based services, consulting, resale, buying goods and reselling them. I did that. That was my thing. I would buy um, vintage comics and toys and flip them, you know. Uh, it was lucrative for a little while, but... It's a very finicky business, and people need to eat. They don't always need comics and toys, right? And that was a lesson learned on me is, like, I would get back involved in that business again. I still have a bunch of comics if I didn't need the money. Like, but at the time, I was using part of the money to live. I was just, like, it was helping. It was, I had a job, but this was also additional income. And anytime you're in that situation, you can't afford to just sit on inventory, like, if I could afford to just sit on the inventory forever and not, it doesn't matter if I sell it or not, I'm just going to sit here and wait until that right buyer comes by. Yeah, that's a good place to be. But if you, can, if you need to move inventory to raise money to fund your business, 
that put me in a very uh, tight spot where every month I was having to basically buy a bunch of inventory, flip it all, sell it, get whatever cash I had to rebuy new inventory. Then it was just a vicious cycle of buying, re- flipping, resell, you know, it was just so. And then shared economy opportunities like Uber driver or Airbnb host. Would either one, would any of y'all do any of that? Would any of you be an Uber driver? Why not? Picking up crazy people. Picking up crazy people, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, part of me is like, you got somebody behind you too in a compromised position because you don't know if they've got a weapon or what. I've seen, I know you all have probably seen scary videos where there was one where this woman was driving an Uber and she was pointing a gun at the guy's back in the chair behind him. She had like a, a real gun pointing at his back. just And they were laughing. They were filming it and laughing. She got arrested. And then there was another one where this Uber driver picked up these bar owners and they were a little intoxicated and they they made a racist comment to the driver and it really it, it offended so they were white and the driver was white but they made a racist comment to the driver and it offended him he was pissed and said hey you're racist you know like I'm not I cancel I'm not taking you and they they got into this heated back and forth you know d- dropping f bombs and stuff we well, said keep on it's all on film you know you're threatening me it's all on film and he put that video on the internet and it blew up and it like they found out who those people were what restaurant they owned it was not good you know so if you're in public you have to always assume you're being filmed so i mean just uh but so ubers are no what about airbnb uh, uh, my friend actually when we take trips to like the beach and uh-huh. get airbnb it's a pretty i like it the the i don't know i've never done it my concern is uh, and i just this is just ignorance i don't know i've heard that sometimes they charge really expensive cleaning fees so yeah yeah, I guess you have to know. I I want to know everything up front, you know. Yeah, it is. It's up front. Like we, yeah. yeah. We booked the house at Lake Norman for my cousin's wedding for her right. party. And, like, it's it's it was all up front. And it, but it is kind of misleading. Like, oh, man, we're getting this crazy house at Lake Norman for, you know, 300 bucks or whatever it was a night. Like, right. Hey, okay. Then you, like, add all these, like, whoa, 2500 And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. But then yeah. you, like, break it down. So, did you did you do it? Oh yeah, yeah we did. Oh, we got like ten people going. Okay, so it's two fifty for the whole thing yeah, yeah, per yeah, person. Okay, bad, yeah. I got you. Well, I don't know. Like, um, I, I've just heard some horror stories about it, and I, I would just feel more confident in a hotel. I mean, because you know what you're getting, you know. So I don't know. So look for a business that uh, meets these important criteria. The job is something you truly enjoy doing. So if you're sketched out about driving people around, yeah, Uber's not for you, right? Um, you know enough to do the job well, or you're willing to spend time learning it while you have another job, and then you can identify a market for your product or service. Yeah, you got to have all three things. You got to want to do it, be good at doing it, and people want what you got to sell. You know, you can be the best cake maker on earth. People ain't buying you cakes. It doesn't matter, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the rub. So, and. You got to be willing to put yourself out there. Like um, my wife started a small business, um, within the past six months, uh, making these bracelets. I don't I don't know how to describe them really, but uh, uh, she she enjoyed it. It's basically these different kinds of clay beads and stuff. 
she liked it. She did okay with it a while. She didn't ever make a lot of money with it, but she had fun with it. And she has still a skill set that she got better at, and she can pop out bracelets uh, if she needed to. So. so benefits of a home-based business, ability to start your business immediately, minimal capital startup needed, no rent or excessive setup charges, comfortable working conditions, reduced wardrobe expenses. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to go out and buy a suit or uh, any type of uh, professional dress. No commuting, tax benefits, elimination of office politics, low risk for trial and error. But some of the downsides, difficult to establish your work habits. So if you're staying up late, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and you're your own boss and you got to be at work at 8 o'clock, well, it's easy to say the 8 o'clock becomes noon, you know, or whatever. Limited support system is just you. Isolation. Yeah, even if you are a home-based business, I feel it's important to get out and go interact with the public. I would highly encourage a home-based business to join the Chamber of Commerce. Most chambers cost somewhere between $100 and $200 a year, but it puts you into a network of people that you can promote your business to. You're promoting your business to other businesses. Workspace may be limited. Um, I was watching a Shark Tank episode, and these, these kids started a coffee subscription business. Every month they would mail you bags of coffee that you can brew from around the world. And they started it and ran it out of their apartment in college. And it was, if you walked in this apartment, it was boxes and just smelled like coffee. It's just coffee and boxes everywhere. And that was, a, that was a limiting factor of how much business you could do. Clients may be uncomfortable coming to your home. Yeah. Like all, like all you guys, I don't want to go hang out at your house. I mean, no disrespect, you know. So, I mean, people's home is like their separate sanctuary away from the world. I don't even like many, anybody coming to my house, really. I mean, my parents every once in a while, maybe. But then I have to sketch and clean up everything as much as possible, you know. So, like, I mean, times have changed. It used to be our society was very open. People went to people's houses. That was the thing to do. Do you guys have a lot of guests at your houses now? Typically no. Typically no? I, I typically no, too. We have a few people every once in a while, like um, a cousin or somebody will come by, but for the most part, like, yeah. Zoning restrictions. Yeah, some places won't let you have a business in your house. Last one is success is based 100% on your efforts. Um, that's, that's not exactly true 100% because... You could do everything right and still fail, but uh, you are like the, the, the driving force behind the business, okay? All right, so this is the first half of Chapter 6. We'll pick up uh, the rest of Chapter 6 on Thursday. Chapter 5 homework, I believe, is due tonight, but sometime tonight or Thursday, between now and Thursday, work on that. Um, any questions about anything we talked about today? All right, guys, I appreciate your time. I'll see you on Thursday, okay? Thanks so much.